Hello, thank you for listening to this sermon from our Revive service. We hope it helps you learn more about God and allow you to grow closer to Him and in your faith. Good morning. Good to see each of you here. If you have your Bibles and you would be willing and able, please turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6 this morning. My name is Aaron Varner. I have the great privilege of being lead pastor here. It's our privilege to have you here this morning. As you walked in, um, you noticed probably a few decorations. And I just want to say that uh, thank you for each person who has been a help uh, these past few months and just working and doing things in prep. And uh, man, we are super excited. Uh, I love it because I feel like a kid again. Like I, I just try to imagine and see life from kids' point of view. So when if I'm working on something, I, I just take myself to back to like a seven-year-old. I probably need to go a little bit older because I was really in trouble at seven, five, six, seven. But eight or nine-year-old um, boy just loving going to vacation Bible school. And, uh, and we're really excited about having, having the kids here. And the decorations are nice. The, the, all the, the different things are great. But it really is about the Word of God. It really is the Word of God and the love of Jesus that we want to share with them. We want to display for them. We want to love on them and care for them and then communicate the truth of God's Word. And so we're really excited about that. Um, just a simple example of why we need your prayer. Um, I, I've told our staff, and I tell them over and over again, um, man, we, we need to pray. Like that is the most important part that we, because we can do all of this, but it's all for naught if it's all in our own strength. And so um, this morning uh, I was working on finishing some slides. I had done most of it yesterday, but I, I adjusted one of my slides that I am going to show you in a little bit. And I put that slide in four different times. And every time I did it, um, and, and created it and I did all kinds of different things. The, the program that we run this, it crashed every time. So after about 45 minutes this morning, I was about ready to like throw something down. And, uh, it's a good thing. I wasn't a wrestler. I was a basketball player, but so just throw the ball against the wall. But it, it's those little things that, that those little things that are like, okay, that only happens on VBS Sunday. Like that does not happen any other Sunday except for when something else is greatly going on. And that's, that's part of the warfare that I know we are encountering and that we're experiencing. And so you have a vital role, whether you're here serving in person or whether you're not able to, uh, you have a role, you have a responsibility in, in this week's Vacation Bible School. And what may be the most vital and most important role is for you to pray. Pray that God would work and that God would be glorified as he works in the lives of each one involved. Uh, one of the great blessings of Vacation Bible School is not only having that impact upon the children and the families, but we get to serve together. We get to be together and it bonds us closer to and so we look forward to that. One of the things that I really like to do is um, I'm, uh, I love Bob because Bob is a big kid in, in a man's body. So 
Um, that's me. And I look forward to getting older like Bob and still being able to do that. But there's, there's certain gadgets and things that you do that are just really fun. And not that there's a fire going on. There isn't. It's okay. Don't panic. But I, I love playing. You like, it almost looks like a real fire, right? Like underneath it's taken off. I've been waiting three weeks to do that. <laughs> Ever since Lisa put this up there, I'm like, I got to wait. I can't do it this Sunday. And then Pastor Paul was here last Sunday. I'm like, I can't do it. I've got to do it next week. So, and there's a motion detensor, dete detector out there that's playing music or sounds. Like for those of you who are sitting in the back row, if you're distracted, join the front row. All right. That's why we put it back there. So if you hear that sound, that's what's going off. Every, every time somebody walks by those doors back there, uh, it sets off a sound. So we've just jimmy-rigged this place for you to have all kinds of fun even here today. But the purpose of this time is to open God's word, and we want to study it together. Uh, would you stand with me? And let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. Lord, we are so grateful that you've allowed us this opportunity to gather today in this place. And Lord, we do pray that you would do a mighty work in us. We look forward to uh, later on this afternoon with Vacation Bible School and the families that you'll bring. Lord, there's a lot on our mind as we prep and continue to prepare and make sure that we have everything's uh, just prepared and, and ready to go for tonight. I know a lot of our teachers and a lot of the workers are just um, uh, have little things that need, they need to, to prepare and to finish and finalize. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help equip them to be able to conclude and get everything done that they need to get done. And Lord, uh, we, we also pray, Lord, for this time that we would be able to pause from everything else that's going on, uh, everything that's going on in our lives, everything that's that, that's happened this week, Lord, there are things that are heavy on our hearts. Uh, Lord, there are things that, are, that have challenged us and challenged our faith. And so we come here at this time and we ask that your spirit would speak to us and meet us where we are. And Lord, we're grateful and thankful that, that you promised us that you'll do that. Lord, that you'll come and meet with us and where we've gathered in your name that you are here. And so we're thankful for that. And we pray that you would use your word to impact our lives, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And that as we leave here, we would not only be encouraged, but we would be challenged, Lord, to live out your word. We would be um, so set in our hearts and our minds that we will live it out, that it's not just what we're here to do, we're not checking a box. We're not just here to hear your word, but we want to be doers of your word. And so help us to know what that looks like uh, in a better way today. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you, Romans chapter 6, let's walk through the first 14 verses here. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For one, um, for now, verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make, it, make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as to those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. That cough was coming through the middle of the passage, so I apologize. And I'm like, no, I got to make it through. No, I can make it through. I'm okay right now. I better not do that right now. <clears throat> teasing, teasing, water. Thank you, Lisa. We'll come back to the book of Romans here in a moment. Let me read to you a little bit from Chuck Swindoll, the beginning of his commentary of this section in Romans chapter 6. It's a little lengthy. I debated on whether or not to read it or not. I think it fits where we're at, okay? So if you would just um, listen attentively. On September 22nd, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation which began, quote, on the first day of January... In the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall be then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforth and forever free. End quote. The Union would have to fight for many months before slaves in the South could claim their precious freedom. Booker T. Washington was nine when emancipation uh, reached his plantation in southwest Virginia, a day he recalled in his autobiography called Up from Slavery. He writes this, The most distinct thing that I now recall in connection with the scene was that some man who seemed to be a stranger, a United States officer, I presume, made a little speech and then read a rather long paper, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. After the reading, we were told that we were all free and could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed her children, while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was a day for which she had been praying long for, but fearing that she would never see. In time, after the final surrender of the Confederacy, the assassination of a president, 
and a difficult political fight, the states ratified the 13th Amendment, which, offic which officially abolished slavery in America. On December 18, 1865, the news swept across Capitol Hill, down the Shenandoah, over the Appalachians, along the back roads of the Carolinas, deep into the plantations of Georgia and Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and into the cotton fields of Texas and Arkansas. The, words, the word was out. Slaves were free, at least officially. The practicality of freedom was another matter. The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted but for a brief period. For I notice, and this is um, Booker T. Washington saying this part, for I notice that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feelings. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and to plan for themselves and their children seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 years out into the world to provide for himself. In a few hours, the great questions with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. These were the questions of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. Was it any wonder that within a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased and a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters? To some, it seemed that now that they were in actual possession of it, freedom was more serious thing than they expected to find it. Some of the slaves were 70 or 80 years old. Their best days were gone. They had no strength with which to earn a living in a strange place and amongst strange people, even if they had been sure where to find a place to abode. To this class, the problem seemed especially hard. Besides, deep down in their hearts, there was a strange and peculiar attachment to the, quote, old master and, quote, old missus, and to their children, with which they found it hard thing to break off. With these, they had spent in some cases nearly half a century, and it was no light thing to think of parting. Gradually, one by one, stealthy at first, the old slaves began to wander from the slave quarters back to the, quote, big house to have a whispered conversation with their former owners as to the future. The end of the quote there from Booker T. Washington. Now, from Chuck Swindoll. After a brief celebration, many former slaves returned to the fields to continue their servitude as sharecroppers. Though officially free to go anywhere, little changed for them in the practical sense. Legal emancipation merely presented, them, presented slaves with the opportunity to live as free men and women. Turning their legal status into actual experience would require an internal transformation. Those who found this challenge too daunting chose the uncomfortable familiarity of slavery instead. How foolish this appears from the perspective of people who have never known slavery. Yet Christians, I would say the majority of them, choose slavery over freedom every day. Having been set free, living as free men and women comes neither easily nor naturally. It's a process. And, like salvation, it must be accomplished supernaturally. 
Theologians have given a name to the gradual internal transformation of a newly freed slave of sin into a fully mature and complete free individual. That term is called sanctification. That is the subject of this section of Paul's letter to the Romans. I find it interesting as we think back to the history of our own country and the perspective from Booker T. Washington of how, um, how they wrestled and struggled with what does it mean now to be free? And for us, I look around the room, I don't think many of us have wrestled with that in real life. And so to hear that and to think about that and that perspective, uh, when I sat in history class, it was, uh, oh, yeah, the slaves are free. Go do whatever you want. It's kind of like when I went to college. <laughs> I went to Baptist Bible College. We still had a curfew, okay? But it was this, this now um, more than just this thought, it was this reality. And for them to try to grasp hold of what all that meant. In many ways, as we read, even from Booker T. Washington, it was very overwhelming. When you think of the scriptures and we, we approach this passage that's probably familiar to you about the slave, the slavery of sin in our lives, what does it mean to be free? Some of you lived a life full of sin and you were so entrapped in sin and to pull yourself away from that bondage you have clearly seen the difference. For me, I grew up in church and I don't have one of those, what I would say, really cool testimonies where I did uh, all these crazy things. I did a lot of crazy things, but uh, it wasn't an utter rebellion, but yet it was still, I still had sin in my life. And so for me, I'm much like how we view history. I, I don't, I can't experience that. I don't, I don't know how that thought, how to process that thinking of walking through that. And yet that's God's grace. And we're going to look at that. And so it doesn't matter where you've been. What we want to look at today is where are you today? Are, are you bound? Are you a slave to your sins? Paul has been building up and he's been talking about how we're set free from the, the, the penalty of sin. And ultimately that penalty is death, right? That death, the wrath of God that's going to be poured out that we see in, in chapter one, it's revealed against all these sinful things against any sin. And yet the grace of God has been extended He's given us a gift through his son, Jesus. And when we believe and accept that gift, we are set free from the bondage of sin and the bondage of death. So we've been given life. Paul begins this section and he says, okay, since we have been set free by God's gift and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's this kind of thinking of saying, well, if God is glorified and his grace keeps bounding more and more, 
the more I sin, maybe I should just keep sinning so that God is more glorified. And Paul's response to that is what we see here in the beginning of this chapter. He says, what shall we say then? Now, let me tell you, Paul uses these rhetorical questions uh, many times as he writes this book. Okay, we'll look into that a little bit more next week. He says this, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? It's a question that refers to a negative response. Okay, it's, it's hard to read it here in English, but it, 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 it is assuming that when the hearer is reading this, that they're going to say no. All right, but he explains more than just the no. What shall we say? Are we continuing to sin that grace may abound? Going back to what we saw in chapter 5, where again, if, if the sin is here and sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then let's keep sinning. And he says, certainly not, or by no means. All right, in the old King James, I love, I love that terminology. So when we see this, it's an emphatic statement to say, definitely not. He makes it crystal clear. So we keep sinning that God's grace may keep growing because that's going to honor and glorify God if I keep sinning. No, no way. So if you want to use your sin as an excuse to bring God glory, let me just tell you that's an opposition. That is not how God works, nor is it how he desires for us to work. He's extended his grace to us and in that, when we sin, his grace does abound, and it does cover that sin. But as Paul will say, how can we keep living if we've died to sin? All right, so how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is whole concept of death. We've seen up until this point, death is because of sin. Paul is introducing this concept, and he's helping us to, to, uh, to bring something, which what we're going to call identity, all right? He's bringing us to help us to see what is and who is our identity. And so if we have died to sin, because why? Because of God's grace, what we've seen in chapter 3 through 5, because of God's grace that's been extended to us as a gift, we get to experience eternal life. Because of that, we've died to sin. How did we die to sin? It's almost inferred here. Well, he's going to walk us through that. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't live in sin and be dead to it at the same time. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Another question he poses here. When Paul is writing this, he uses the word baptizo. The Greek word baptizo is a transliteration, and it means to be submerged or to be emerged in. Submerged or emerged into. So as Paul's writing this, I do not believe that Paul is specifically talking about water baptism here. I do think that there is great symbolism in our water baptism that reflects exactly this thought. Okay, Paul isn't talking about, hey, when you were baptized with water. He's talking about what has happened when we accept that gift that God offers to us through his grace. 
He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or submerged or immersed into Christ Jesus, we were baptized or immersed into his death? Meaning, here is Christ, and as we look at him, we, we are, uh, not only is he someone that we look to, but he is our representation. So everything that Christ is representing, it represents me too. And so we're going to look at that in just a moment. Uh, a great chart that I told you took 45 minutes to be able to get up here, so hopefully it doesn't all crash behind me, but that for more and Wearsby, and he helps lay it out for us. This whole idea of the representation of Christ for me, because Christ died and I'm in him, I'm immersed in him, because he died, then I died. I'm claiming him as my own. Not only did I claim him for my, um, my, my justification, my, the right relationship, and not only did, did he also take care of my legal demands, uh, extending his righteousness to me. But now, what is he saying? He, he is giving me this life, and now I'm no longer obligated to it because I'm not, I'm not dead in it. I died to sin, and I'm alive with him. So I've been baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So we get to, not only were we dead, and we died with Christ as our representation and as our affiliation with him, but then as he was raised, what does it say there? Just as Christ was raised from the dead, and I love that little phrase that Paul puts in, because he always puts in a little bit extra of theology. And he says, by the glory of the Father. Because he just wants his readers to understand it's all about glorifying the Father. You read through the book of John, that as we just studied, Jesus' whole life was about doing the Father's will. And ultimately, it was to bring him glory. Paul writes here for us, ultimately, he was raised from the dead. Why? For the glory of the Father. Why is that important? It's just a little phrase, and we can quickly look over it. But I'm telling you, as Paul is writing here, we are free, and I want to talk about freedom, but you are not free if, you're, if you've accepted the gift of grace that God extends to you. We as Christians walk around thinking, I have the liberty and the right to do whatever I want to do. That's not scriptural. That's not what the Bible says. At the end, I'll share a story. While, while we have to be careful, though, that we don't, subject ourselves to a bunch of rules and regulations or a way of thinking that keeps us in bondage, we are not free to do whatever we want. Part of it is, is because when we were bound to sin, we couldn't help but to sin. It, we weren't free from that. It, it's a bondage. It's the chain that held us. And yet Jesus has set us free from that. And when he sets us free, it means I no longer have to do that. And that's what Paul is getting at here. You have died with Christ. And not only did you die with him, but you're going to get to experience the resurrection of just like Christ was raised from the dead. So that you may glorify God. 
the Father. So that you too, then to verse 4, might walk in the newness of life. We get to walk in the newness of life. This is not trying to throw arrows or darts at you. But there are some of you who don't walk in newness of life. You're like a decaying, walking dead man or dead woman. You're grumpy. You're all about yourself. You've lost your joy. You've lost your satisfaction. You're searching and seeking things that are not going to provide anything. And Paul is writing here for us to say, listen, if you're in Christ, you've experienced his death. You've died to yourself. You're raised to new life so that you can experience what that life looks like. Then he gives more detail. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I've been baptized in Christ both spiritually and physically. Spiritually, I was dead. I acknowledged my sin. I died with him. I gave him my life. I, I was raised again. But I'm still in this flesh. And I look forward to this verse, that we certainly will be united with him in a resurrection like his. I believe this is talking about the resurrection to come. Because I don't know about you, I can't walk through walls. I can't walk through doors. But one day, somehow, some way, it's going to be really cool how we move around. I don't know. But Jesus just appears to the disciples in, in the locked room. And there, boom, there he is. He, he is a resurrected body that is new and complete, yet he has the nail prints and the scars showing that he's Christ and showing the penalty that he paid on our behalf. We, we get a new body and we're raised in this new life, and I look forward to that. No more struggling with forgetting or getting old, or feeling sore, getting down on your knees and saying, I don't know how to get up. All of that, we get to be raised and united with him in a res resurrection like his. The beautiful part of that is not only do we get a new body, but we get to be united with him. A unity that we don't have here on this earth, but we look forward to. A unity that we get to walk not only by faith, but we get to walk by sight because we will see Jesus just as he is. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is what I was talking about. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're not bound by sin anymore. But it's because why we were crucified. That's why Paul writes in Colossians to the church in Colossae. Listen, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. But it's Christ in me that lives. I believe this is something that's, that's a pandemic amongst the churches, especially in America, but around the globe. And I don't think it's anything new. You are all about yourself. And I am too. 
But yet that's not how we're to live. The life that we've been granted through the blood of Jesus Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, I've been given new life. And when I accept that free gift, while it is a free gift, ultimately it costs me my life. Jesus wants my full and entire heart and mind and soul. He tells me that's how I love him, to love with him with all of my strength, with every part of me. He doesn't want 50%. He doesn't want 75%. He doesn't want 99%. He wants all of us. And we struggle with that because everything in society tells us that we have the right to be free from that. You don't need to be bound in slavery to Jesus. And while we are free from sin, what we have, we've been given eternal life. We've been given his righteousness. We have been given his justification. We've been given all these great things that we know we need because we can't produce them in and of ourselves. But we want those things, but we still want to live life the way we want to live it. We still want to sin. We still want to make the choices that we want. And I wonder how frustrated God is with us at times. Frustrated with me. And says, Aaron, I have something more for you. But you keep seeking after those things that are not going to fulfill you. They're not going to bring you the life that you desire. We're no longer enslaved to sin. I want you to hear that. That doesn't mean that you won't sin. Very early on in my ministry, I remember getting a phone call here. And this gentleman was very adamant, and he, and he said, can you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of, of Romans chapter 6? And he said, would you read, and there's a section of verses, he said, would you read those to me? And I said, yeah. So I read them. He said, do you th do you, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, I am. I said, I, I follow Christ. I believe that he died for me, was buried and rose again three days later, and he's given me eternal life. He's like, well, do you still sin? And I said, yes. He said, well, then you're not a good pastor. Again, early on in my ministry, I'm thinking, first of all, who is this dude? <clears throat> all right. But he had this theology, and this is where some people will take these verses and they twist them. And so let me, let me caution you. This does not mean, Paul is not saying that you're no longer going to sin. And that if, you're, if you sin, that you're no longer God's child or you're never really his child. That's not the theology that Paul is teaching. In fact, he's going to help us later on to see when he says himself, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do or that I need to do. Paul, admitting he's a sinner after he has trusted Christ. Here, this is not about us no longer ever sinning. This is about a mindset and a heart set. And to not only to gain the knowledge and insight of, hey, I don't have to sin anymore. I'm no longer bound by sin. It doesn't have its rule or reign over me. I'm no longer enchained to it, but it's this accepting and to say, I am going to believe this. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing to really believe it and to claim it and to say, okay, I don't have to do that. 
I don't have to look and watch that movie or that, that screen, or I don't have to go and click on that website and to see that thing. I don't need that. And I process through, what does it mean? And so hopefully you have some scriptures in your mind. I will set no unwholesome thing before my eyes. Why? Because God doesn't want me to have any fun? No, because he says that's not, that's not what's best for you. And so I'm no longer enchained to that sin, but I'm set free from that. And God says, listen, Paul is writing here. We are no longer enslaved to sin. You need to know today that you, if you're a follower and child of Jesus Christ, you don't have to give in to sin. Paul writes in Corinthians about how he gives us a way of escape. That when we're tempted, it's always there. And I always think of this, like this burning and burning building. And there's one little, little place. And, and I can get so wrapped up into whatever that sin may be. This morning, it was ready to throw the computer against the wall. And being infuriated and say, okay. Ugh! Or I can choose that little narrow door that's right down... I might have to crawl out of it, but there's a way to get out. God says, listen, I, I, I want to inject my spirit into you so that you're living not by your spirit, but by my spirit. And I want you to know you're no longer bound to those sins. Some of you have built bad habits, and those bad habits make you feel like you're enchained to sin and you can't break it. And I'm here to tell you that God can set you free. If he has set you free, you are free indeed. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Again, our representation here, Christ, everything that he has gone through, we go through, Paul is writing. So as Paul writes, death no longer has dominion over Christ. That's us. Death no longer has dominion over you. Just take that truth and let it soak in. What does that mean? Death no longer has dominion over you. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. Representation. If you, you put yourself in verse 10. For the death that you died, you died to sin. And you did it once. Christ died for you once for all. For all mankind. Forever, for all eternity, it was sufficient enough that one perfect God-man, that he would die for us. You died to sin once. And in that death, what took place? The life that you live, you live for who? For yourself. To do whatever you want to do. To have whatever attitude you want. To sin that grace may abound. No, you live for God. Verse 11, so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ. It always comes back to in Christ. There's not multiple ways to God. 
There's not multiple ways to have life, to have eternal life. There's only but one way, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he died for you. He died in your place to take your sin, to take all of the punishment that you deserve for your disobedience. Christ hung on a cross, and he bore the wrath of God for you. And he offers to you eternal life. That eternal life did not come cheap. We cheapen grace today because we feel like we can accept the gift and then do whatever we want to do. That's not what it means to be a child of God. To be a child of God means that you realize you are hopeless and helpless and that you need a savior and that you accept Jesus Christ as that way of living. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he provides the way to God in eternal life. And once you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you get to live in him. And you get to glorify God in him. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul now makes this statement in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Or you could put that therefore in the beginning of the sentence. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Why? Because of what he just said. Because you died with Christ. So don't keep on sinning. Because you don't have to make it obey. You don't have to obey the passions of sin. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its, its passions. Do not present your members to, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But instead, Paul says this, present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will, not, will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Grace does not give you the freedom to live life however you want. Too many of us, and maybe you sit here today, you have had the mindset that grace allows you to do whatever you want, to think whatever you want, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Let me tell you, sin will always hurt you, and will affect others. It always will. You show me a biblical account of sin where it not only affected the individual who, who did the sin, but how it did affect others around them. It always does. Paul is saying, listen, you don't have to live in sin. You can choose something else. That's why he uses these words present. Verse 13, he says, do not present your members to, members to sin as instruments. All right, if I pick up this guitar, first of all, I'm not going to touch it because I don't want to break it. Second of all, if I picked it up and I started playing it, it would be bad. All right? But I, you play an instrument. Andrew, if he came up here because he's practiced it, he would be, he's very good at it. It's an instrument that is at the command of whoever's playing it. It doesn't do it by itself. It sat there this whole time, very quiet. All right? 
didn't even do anything. It's not until you grab a hold of it and you are purposefully taking action that it makes music. It's the same thing. What Paul is saying, you have your bodies. You have the opportunity to present them as instruments to sin. Or are you going to present them for God's glory? For God to do something great. For life. For members of what he says, righteousness. You've been bought from death to life. So present your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for right doing, right living, right thinking, right believing. There's a chart. We'll throw it up here now if it goes. There it is. Warren Wearsby takes these two sections, and I love how he does this. Romans 3.21 through 5.21, he talks about the substitution. Ultimately, Jesus is the substitution for me. He died in my place. What we see here in this next section, Romans 6 through 8, is the identification. And we've started to see that here this morning. That I died with him. That, that, that I'm part of that. It's not just that he did it for me, but no, as I accept Christ as my own, this is my life. This is how I'm represented. And then he says that ultimately Christ, he paid sin's penalty. And then he broke sin's power in this identification. We see the justification. We've talked about this. The, the righteousness of God is imputed in my life, meaning it was put in my account. My account was found wanting. I was on trial and the legal demands of sin said I was short. Well, justification means that my account is in right standing with God because his righteousness was accounted to my account and I am now justified. Well, in this Romans chapter six through eight, we see Paul writing about sanctification and, and this imparted part where, where God has made it a part of my life. He's given his righteousness to be a part of my life so that I'm living it out. It's not just his righteousness given to me so I'm in right standing with him. But now it's this process of God working on me, revealing and showing me not only my shortcomings, but showing his righteousness and how I can live that out. That's why I didn't throw the computer against the wall today. It wasn't right. It wasn't good. I was frustrated. I was upset. But yeah, that's not the right way to do it. It's not the right way to live. I didn't start cursing at somebody because they asked me a question. I'm so mad at this. By God's grace, his process of sanctification in my life, where I'm starting to realize, God, I trust you. I see all these things in my life, and I know you have a plan. And I'm going to trust you. The righteousness of God imparted in my life. It's part of who I am. And so we're saved by his death. And we're also saved by his life. Because we get to live that life every day. Yet we walk around as dead people. Why? Because we give in to sin. Because we won't do what we want to do. Because our pride and our arrogance. And we're not willing to lay it down. 
We're not willing to submit. We're not willing to take on the full identity of who Christ is. That is a process. I'm not expecting you to go out here totally transformed and change. But I do expect and I'm praying that God in his process of sanctification in your life, that you will begin to see how much better it is when your identity, your full identity is found in Christ. It's much more satisfying than any sin that only lasts. The Bible tells us sin is sweet for a season, but it, its way leads to death. We've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. We've been given life. Why would you want to go back to death? You're not obligated to sin. Why? Because you died with Christ. Don't submit to sin. For those of you who have been in the military, you know about this. My, my dad uh, was drafted and then later enlisted uh, in the Marines. And uh, he, didn't, he doesn't talk about it a lot, but every so often he'll mention a few things. And my brothers and I have, our ears get about this big whenever he talks about it because we want to know all about it. When, uh, when you are in the Marine Corps and you go um, to boot camp, you are very quickly, um, what's the right word? Put in your place. Um, you understand that there is one person in charge, and that's the drill instructor. He is the subject of your authority. And if he says jump, you jump. If he says get down, you get down. If he says eat, you can eat, you eat. Whatever that drill instructor says, you have to obey its command. If you don't, there are severe um, consequences, bad consequences. <laughs> That's us in sin. Sin is a drill instructor that maybe we didn't sign up for, but we're all born into. And because we're born into it, we can't get out of it. It's like boot camp every day. And the drill instructor is sin having dominance and dominion over you. But Christ came to set you free. I love what Chuck Swindoll talks about because he talks about the day that uh, down the road after he was in the Marine Corps, he ran into his drill instructor and as uh, just in civilian life and his drill instructor remembered him and was talking to him. But that drill instructor didn't tell him what to do. That drill instructor actually called him sir instead of Chuck calling him sir. He didn't tell him to get down and do five push-ups because why? He was no longer under the authority of that drill instructor. We live life going back to sin. And yet that's not what God intends. It's like going back to boot camp. Don't go. Why would you do that? Come on. Don't do that. And yet we're pulled to do that at times, but we don't have to because we've been set free. But our authority is not our own. 
You don't get to choose what you want to do. When you're set free from the bondage of sin, you're claiming Christ as yours. You're claiming Christ as your authority. Unfortunately, I think we've preached a false gospel. We've preached a false gospel and understanding, helping people to say, well, you can be free from your sin so that you can have a home in heaven. But that's not all of it. God desires our life. So when we ask for the forgiveness of our sin, we are set free from the drill instructor of sin, of telling us what to do. But now we get to be underneath the gracious, loving grace of our Heavenly Father. He is not a drill instructor. Here's my story. For years, I pastored until my first sabbatical underneath this weight that God was just waiting to punish me every time I sinned or did something wrong. So I would sin or do something wrong and then something bad would happen. I'm like, yep, see, there's proof. God, God's just punishing me. And don't get me wrong. There are times that I definitely needed discipline and I still need disciplined. But the discipline comes from a loving and gracious God. Not a dictator God who is abusive or who doesn't care about me. Or who doesn't want what's best for me. I was run by guilt. I was controlled by guilt. Yet that's not how our God works. When we've been set free from sin. We are slaves to God. Paul uses that term many, many times. When he is starting off in the beginning of a letter or a book. Here, I am a bond servant of Christ Jesus, he'll say, and he'll write. I think it was not just a, 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 hey, hello, my greeting. I think it was for not only a reminder for him, but for others to say, this is how I live my life. This is who I am. This is my identity. And as we come underneath the identity of a loving and gracious God, we don't get to live however we want, though. And he doesn't control us by guilting us into making decisions. He wants you to make decisions based on his love. And his truth. Where do we find truth? It's in his word. So you want to know what God's objective is for you? Read his word. It's also to use his people to help us. Now, we have to be careful because people are manipulators, right? Anybody been around one before? I am one. That's why I have to be extremely careful in the role that I play. There's a lot of pastors who are really good at it. There's a lot of bad examples, but there's a lot of good examples too. When we think of God, God is not a God who is trying to manipulate you to do um, whatever he wants, that we're just little pawns. So that he can get um, his way in some like mysterious, mischievous, like um, out to get us type thing. No, in fact, he loves us perfectly. He always has. 
The moment that you accepted Christ, he loves you the same then as he does now. And so regardless of where you are and your walk with him, he desires for you to come underneath his authority and to live his way. So that you no longer sin that grace may abound. That thinking is so ridiculous. But that we would realize that we are dead with Christ. We've been submerged into his death. We've been risen with him. We've been given this life. And this life is not for us to live on our own doing. But we live it in a way that ultimately it brings him glory. So we look at it as we're free from sin. True. You are free. God loves you and he wants what's best for you. But are you doing what he wants you to do? Are you living your life in a way that honors him? And if your speech and your thoughts and your actions don't match up, you need to take a hard look. If your life is consumed about you, you need to take a hard look. I think there's a lot of people who are consumed with themselves. And God's church has suffered because of it. I'm not here to try to manipulate you to give money or to give time or to give your talents in a certain way. I will tell you that God has formed and fashioned West Hill Baptist Church and this group of people here to serve him. And he wants all of us. And one of the most frustrating things as a pastor is to see people who are gifted in different ways and have different abilities and different treasures that God has equipped them with and them using them just for themselves. You ever looked at somebody and said, man, if that person came to know Christ, they would be a great Christian. They would do great things for the kingdom of God. I've met a few of those people. I've had a few of those thoughts. There's this other thought that says, man, if that person would only give their whole life to Christ and stop playing games, I wonder what God could do through them. What's your life look like? Are you still dabbling? God wants all of you. Again, this is not a message to try to manipulate you to do or to believe or act a certain way. I want you to know the truth and I want you to live it out. We've had a couple of really good weeks of really sweet, nice messages. They're easy to preach about God's love and his grace and his gift. But let me tell you, this message is just as important. Live in the freedom that he gives you. But understand, he is your authority. You can't have it both ways. He wants all of our life. Have you given it to him? Do you need to rethink what that looks like? What we've seen here today is the opportunity to know what the truth is. We need to consider it. And then we need to present ourselves. Paul's used each of those words as we walk through this passage. To know it, let's consider it. Okay, I've seen it. I know this is to be the truth. I'm considering what does that look like in my life. And then now presenting myself. Don't leave any one of those steps out. Count the cost and then realize 
I've got to present myself. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your love. Thanks for the opportunity to be in your word. We do thank you for your grace. Your grace is so undeserving. And the older I get, Lord, the more I realize how much more and more and more and more and more and more I need it. And how you've extended it to me in so many ways that is undeserved. I'm not worthy of your grace. None of us sit here and are worthy of the grace that you've extended to us. May that help propel us in our thinking to know what the truth is as we consider it and think about the grace that you've extended to us, what it's cost. Not only what it costs Christ, but what it costs us. Where we were and being helpless and hopeless without you. And now you've given us your spirit. And we get to live life for you. May we apply that as we live it out. May we, as Paul says, present ourselves as instruments for righteousness. Forgive us for where we fall short, Lord. We come knowing that you are a God who has told us to seek your forgiveness when we sin. Call it by its name to admit it and then repent to turn from it. Not to keep dabbling in it, keep playing in it, it leads to death. It leads to destruction. And you've set us free from all of that. Instead, you've given us life. So in those moments when we're weak, when we turn to our flesh, Lord, we choose to sin against you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. May we see the joy of living our lives and presenting ourselves as instruments of righteousness for your glory so that others may see how awesome and how great your grace is and that they may see in us people who are alive, not people who are dead. That only happens because of your spirit that works and abides in us. And so we pray for your spirit to work in a great way. This day, in the days ahead, in the week ahead, Lord, we desire for you to be glorified through us. So help us to do that. We love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. All of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.